I'm continuing on in our series called Conversations, and I, I considered a number of different directions to go today, uh, and then I, I stumbled upon, you ever have those moments where you stumble upon a, you know, a, a verse that you've read like 8,000 times and it just hits you different? Um, I, I wanted to, if you're taking notes this morning, I'd have you write down, so that you may believe. So that you may believe. How many of you have ever been misunderstood? You know, whether it's that you, you know, you spoke out of turn or you, your, your, your motives were questioned. I think every, every person in this room can understand the feeling of not getting heard right. You know, texting, you know, I, one of the things I hate about uh, like texting and emails and all that kind of stuff is that we know, we know statistically that 70% of all human communication is via body language. Effectively, you, what you're saying is understood best when people see you, and yet the mode of communication that most of us use the most is actually only about 30% as effective as the real way. Being misunderstood is kind of part of our DNA at this point. How many of you have ever gotten a text message that didn't have or had punctuation at the end of it and it was a period? And you're like, wow, I didn't realize you hated me today. A period, wow, you chose violence, right? But you know, I, I've, been, I've been reflecting on not, what Je- on not just what Jesus has been doing in our country, but around the world over the last couple of weeks. And on one hand, there seems to be two general reactions. Wow, look what God is doing. Or wow, look what the devil is doing. It amazes me that we can see time after time after time God do whatever he wants to do. And for whatever reason, no matter how many times we see it, our first question is, is this really God? That blows my mind. But in reflection, it strikes me that believing God is a lot harder than I've ever considered. Like it shouldn't be, right? You know, I was, I was, I was in worship today and we were singing, uh, we were singing you know, the goodness of God and, 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 and that, that opening line in the chorus says that all my life you've been faithful. And I... I became... I'm going to get there, I promise. I began to consider all of my foolishness versus all of God's faithfulness. I began to consider all of my many mistakes, all of my many sins, all of my many falls, and I'm still standing because God held me. And I have the audacity to ask, is this you, God? I have the stones to question and move of God. After all that I've seen, that first question pops into my mind, is this you? It shouldn't be hard to believe God, but it is. And it's not because he's not consistent in speaking. It's not because he's inconsistent in working or providing, but because we by nature are inconsistent in our thinking. We are inconsistent in our thinking. We know that God is always available. We know that God has everything that we need, and yet we still say, 
Where are you? I want to break down a story from the book of Mark that, I, that I've never really read the way that I read it the other day. The book of Mark, if you don't know the etymology, was written by a, uh, by a disciple named John Mark, who was the uh, cousin of Barnabas. Well, John Mark wasn't actually an original disciple of Jesus. He, at, uh, at one point in time, was a ministering helper to the apostle Peter. So effectively, Mark's gospel is Peter's gospel. The interesting thing about Mark, most, most scholars believe that there's a, there's a reason why it's so short. And it, it kind of, if you, if, you, if you watch sports, it reads more like a highlight reel than it does like watching a full game. Like if you've ever, like streaming apps now are kind of interesting. They have this feature where if you start watching a show after it began, especially a, a, like a, a game, it'll give you the option to catch up by watching the highlights. Like, so you don't have to go all the way back. You can just catch up by watching the highlights, the most important plays. In some ways, that's like the book of Mark. Mark wasn't actually trying to capture a history, which is why there's a whole different feel to the book of Mark than there are to the other Gospels. He wasn't trying to, he wasn't trying to write the most accurate historical document. He was trying to declare a message. He was trying to get a word across, not necessarily a history across. I want to read, we're going to start in Mark chapter 6. We're going, to, we're going to hit a lot of scripture today. I'm going to kind of bounce around a little bit. But we're going to start in verse 30. It says, The apostles gathered around him, Jesus, and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Now, I want to, I'm going to stop right here real quick. This is just after Jesus has sent his disciples out into the countryside in order to proclaim the gospel. So what he did was he, he gathered the 70 together. He anointed them. And he said, now you're going to go preach the message, you're going to cast out demons, you're going to heal the sick, and you're going to proclaim the coming kingdom of God. And so these guys have all just kind of returned from this journey. And so they say, he said to them, come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. A retreat sounds nice. I mean, Jesus was basically saying, hey man, you guys have done a lot of great work, how about a vacation? Anybody in the room like a vacation right about now? Let's go to a nice, warm, sunny place. All right, let's go have a vacation with Jesus. I mean, I can just imagine how stoked these dudes were. Like, oh man, we're going to go have a vacation with Jesus. Let's go. But then it says, for many people were coming and going and they did not even have enough time to eat. So I want, I, want to, I want to set this picture. I, I'm going to skip about four verses here, but I'll tell you what it says in, in, in a nutshell. Just after Jesus says, let's go on a vacation, a bunch of people follow him while he's going on vacation. If you follow me on vacation, I will strike you. But Jesus is so much better than me. Like, he's a way better pastor than I am. And so, what does Jesus do? He sees the crowds, he has compassion on them, and then he says, okay guys, we're canceling the vacation. Bearpaw interns, cancel vacation. Back out. Let's go do another tour. These guys are ready, man. I wasn't ready. <laughs> all right, verse 35 says, but when it grew late, so Jesus teaches them all day. Man, I can barely make it 40 minutes. Jesus teaches them all day, and when it grew late, his disciples approached him and said, 
This place is deserted. It's already late. Send them away so they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. And Jesus, in typical Jesus fashion, doesn't say, wow, that's a great idea, guys. He says, why don't you give them something to eat? And the disciples are like, what are, you, are we like flush with cash or something? Like, you, you, you really want us to go and buy 200 denarii? That's, by the way, a denarii or denarius is one day's wages. So what he's saying is to feed this people, we would have to work for 200 days to earn the amount of money we would need just to give everybody a mouthful of bread. What do you mean you feed them? And then he asked them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he instructed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Man, this is a crowd. A crowd. And so he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke the loaves. He kept them or kept giving them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all, and everyone ate and was satisfied. They picked up 12 baskets full of pieces of bread and fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately, starting in verse, in verse 45, he says, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After he said goodbye to them, he went away to the mountain to pray. Well into the night, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land. He saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And very early in the morning, he came toward them walking on the sea and wanted, to, listen to this, and wanted to pass by them. He wasn't actually going to like hang out with his dudes. He was just going to walk like... <laughs> He was just going to walk to Bethsaida. He was just going to walk across the sea. Like, who needs a boat when you can just walk over the water? He was going to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the water, they thought it was a ghost and cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke with them and said, Have courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. They were completely astounded. But this is where... I this is what I want you to hear. Because they had not understood about the loaves, instead, their hearts were hardened. Instead, their hearts were hardened. I'd never read that before. Most of the time when we, when we read the story of Jesus walking on water, it's actually not from Peter's perspective. It's from Matthew or it's from Luke. Peter's perspective, he doesn't even put himself into the text. He doesn't talk about how he walked on water and then he sank. The only place in the entire Gospels that records this one phrase, their hearts were hardened, is right here in the book of Mark. Nobody else mentions they were mad at Jesus. Nobody else mentions they were actually kind of upset about the fish and the loaves. Have you ever seen God work a miracle that you got mad at? What about when one of your enemies gets saved? Their hearts were hardened. 
So let's set the scene here. The disciples have been sent out, like I said, in the, the surrounding countryside after being anointed to preach. They return. Jesus says, we're going on a retreat together. All the people show up with them. Vacation gets canceled. And then how many of you have ever been? Well, maybe you're like me and you grew up a church kid. How many of you have ever waited at church for your parents to leave? Oh, my Lord. My dad and my mom just wonderful saints that they are. My mom and dad, it felt like when I was growing up, it felt like my parents would not leave church until they had talked to everyone. We only had one service, guys, one service that started at 10 o'clock in the morning. Most Sundays, I wouldn't leave church until almost two o'clock in the afternoon. Like, I was basically in church for the same amount of time that Mormons were, but mostly just because my parents were talking to people. Like, it was crazy. But basically, what, what, what these disciples are saying when they come to Jesus and they're like, listen, this place is desolate. What, he's, what they're really saying is, can we go now? Haven't we done enough? Haven't we ministered enough? Haven't you talked enough? Haven't you healed enough people? Haven't you cast out enough demons? Haven't we done enough to go get a rest? And because that posture in their hearts was, can we go now? They couldn't actually... They lost the wonder of Jesus in their exhaustion. See, this same terminology that says that they hardened their hearts... That's the same terminology that we see in the book of Exodus about Pharaoh. That he saw the wonders and the miracles that God was doing, and he couldn't even appreciate it. He was just like, eh. I don't know, man. Frogs might not be enough for me. But what's crazy is these are the same guys that just came off the mission field. They're the same guys that just cast out demons, just performed miracles, and have walked with Jesus for almost two years by this point in the narrative. And here's the big idea. You and I are just as capable of unbelief as unbelievers. You and I are just as capable. And actually, I would, I would say it this way, maybe a different way. We're probably more capable because we see the work of God on a consistent basis. And there are times where we're just like, huh. I don't know. I guess God's good. See, I think that we are so surrounded by the goodness of God that we sometimes reach like a saturation point, almost an entitled familiarity that can rob God of our, 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 our awe of him. Not just our gratitude, but our awe. Man, we are so familiar with the presence of God that we forget it's the presence of God. Not the presence of your husband, not the presence of your kid, not the presence of your auntie. It's the presence of God. And we walk into worship services and we're like, I don't know if I want to worship today. You know, I never really was a kid guy until I had kids. But man, toddlers are so fun to entertain. You notice that? 
They are so fun to entertain. Why? Because you can do the same thing over and over, and it's like they're, they're seeing it for the first time. You can, play, you can play peekaboo for 45 minutes with a toddler, and it's like they don't understand that you're hiding behind your hands. You're like, oh, and they're like, oh my gosh. What just happened there? I mean, most of the time, I'll be like, quite honest with you, I would get bored of playing with my toddlers before they would get bored of what I was doing. They're like, man, do it again, daddy. I'm like, it was, <laughs> it was the same thing over and over. <laughs> I don't know, but otherwise it's so impressive to you. But it's because they carry a childlike awe of everything around them. Man, we become so adult. We've become so adult that nothing causes childlike wonder anymore. Nothing causes childlike wonder anymore. Can I tell you what is the cancer to your spirit? Cynicism. Cynicism is a cancer to the spirit. Listen to this. This is Proverbs chapter 4, 23. It says, guard your heart, listen, above all else. Not your ego, not your opinions, not your theological stances, your heart. Guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. Maybe can I say it a different way? Guard your heart, because what gets in it will get out of it. What gets in it will come out of it. If your heart is poisoned, everything that you see will be poisoned. If your heart is bitter, Every experience that you have, good or bad, will be tinged with bitterness. Let me give you an example. You see somebody get healed, and you're like, why didn't it happen to me? You see somebody have an encounter with God, and you say, why isn't that happening for me? Our hearts have become poisoned by comparison. Suspicion in, suspicion out. Skepticism in, skepticism out. Cynicism in, cynicism out. Guard your heart above all else, for it's the source of all life. I just want to talk about a couple of factors that rob us of our wonder. The first one, exhaustion. Anybody tired in here? And these boys were tired. I can tell you guys, when I get done preaching and like ministering on a Sunday morning, I need a nap. I once heard a pretty well-known minister put into words why leaders feel so tired after church. He said, well, you're not just preaching or leading worship. You're also battling all the powers of hell while doing so. This isn't a TED talk I'm giving you. Like, I'm not just preaching here. I'm fighting hell on your behalf so that you can hear the word of the Lord so it can go into your heart and produce fruit. Now, that's not so you can be like, oh, Pastor Joel, thank you. No, I'm just telling you, that's why I'm tired. I'm just telling you. But man, you really, you know when you're tired, everything is irritating? Like, everything is irritating. Like, you you could be around... You can be around the same people 
that you love and you honor and you cherish, but when you're tired, they are annoying. <laughs> Their voices sound shriller in your head than they are in reality. They, you, know, like you, you notice how many times they ask the same questions over and over and over. Like you notice everything and everything is hurtful to you. See, these fellows have been going around and ministering every single day. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how long they were out and about, but most scholars believe that they were going ahead of Jesus into villages and preparing those villages for his journey to Jerusalem. So it was likely several weeks running where they were traveling, ministering, traveling, ministering, traveling, ministering, traveling, ministering, traveling. These dudes were tired. Here's what I won't tell you. There is not a criticism here of the disciples. Jesus told them they were going to rest, and then he forced them to minister again. Can I tell you the lesson? You're not always going to be well-rested. You're not always going to be able to like be at your best when God calls you to do the work. It would be lovely if God would give me a heads up before I'm about to do something crazy so I could get in a couple of extra naps ahead of time. But that's not how it works. But I guess what I would tell you is this. If you're consistently finding yourself tired and worn out because of your pace and your practice, you need to consider that there is a difference between being busy and being fruitful. Man, we love busy in America. How you been doing, bro? Busy. Okay. You didn't tell me what you did. You just told me what you've been doing. Maybe I got to ask you a different question. What in your life is producing fruit? Because the better question is not how you're doing or how long have you been doing what you're doing. The question is, how fruitful are you being? You know, I told this story a number of years ago. I wasn't actually planning on telling it here, but the first time that I realized what kind of fruit tree that I had outside my house was when I actually pared it back. When I cut back its leaves, when I cut back the size of this tree... All of a sudden, that spring, I realized I had a plum tree. Why? Because the nature of a tree is not to bear fruit, it's to bear leaves. The nature of a tree, what trees want to do, is they want to grow more branches so they can grow more leaves. But what I, as the homeowner want my tree to do is produce fruit. So rather than allowing it to just continue to be busy, I have to trim its busyness back so it can actually produce the fruit that I want it to produce. Listen, I want to encourage somebody in the room to look at your schedule and ask yourself, am I busy or am I fruitful? And if you're finding more leaves than fruit, man, you need to do something different. Pare it back. God didn't ask you to be busy. He asked you to be fruitful. Number two, jealousy. Luke 7, 20 to 23, it's a crazy passage of scripture. It says, when the men reached him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come or should we expect somebody else? I love Jesus' response. He said, at that time, Jesus healed many people of diseases, afflictions, and evil spirits, and he granted sight to many blind people. And he replied to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, 
and the poor are told the good news. And then he, he, he adds this last phrase, and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. Why did he add that? Because here's John sitting in jail, wondering why he's not at Jesus' side. This is the same guy that proclaimed that Jesus was the Son of God. This is the same guy that, that told all of the people that were, that were coming to him during the time of his own ministry and said, there's one coming after me. I'm not even fit to tie his sandal. And yet, in a moment of either despair or jealousy or a little of both, John sends out his disciples to say to Jesus, are you really the guy or should we wait for somebody else? You know what I kind of wonder, Mom? You know, in Mark chapter 6, where it says that they hardened their hearts, you know what I kind of wonder? I wonder if they were mad that Jesus one-upped them. Like, you ever had somebody, like you give a testimony about something that God did in your life and somebody's like, oh man, I got a great testimony too, and it's way better than your testimony? <laughs> so here's the disciples coming back from their cool journey, <laughs> their fun time. You know, they've you know, cast out a few demons, they healed the sick, and they're like, Jesus, look what we did. And he's like, check this out. I'm going to feed 5,000 people. Oh, wow, thanks, man. That was awesome. Kind of took the wind right out of my whole casting out demons tale, but that, that's awesome. Great. Fantastic. <laughs> you might think that this is a far-fetched possibility, but I know how easy it is to see something that God is doing somewhere else and wonder, why isn't he doing it here? Are we doing something wrong? You know what the next question is? Are they doing something wrong? Because it is way easier it is way easier to say, oh, you know what they're doing over at Asbury. Yeah, that's not a real move of God, guys. It is so easy to look at what God is doing in other places and say, well, that's because they're compromising. We got the real gospel, whatever that means. <laughs> but I got to tell you something, man. The key to fruitfulness isn't flashiness, it's faithfulness. The key to fruitfulness isn't flashiness, it's faithfulness. You are called to plow your own field. You're not called to plow my field. You're not called to you know, plow the field of somebody over you know, some, you know, Instagram that you saw that's presenting the best of their fruit and they're not showing you anything else about their life. It is so easy to get jealous about what God is doing in somebody else's life, but you are not in their life. You don't know what it took to get there. At the end of your life, you won't hear, well done, good and flashy servant. <laughs> Boy, you were awesome in that revival night. Boy, you were awesome in that one moment. Boy, you were awesome in this. Boy, you were awesome in that. No, it's well done what? Good and faithful. You stuck it out. You stuck it out. You made it. Because there's another instance there's another instance where Jesus says, in, on that day, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out many demons in your name? Did we not heal the sick in your name? And he'll say, I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness. Flashy doesn't get you fruit. Faithful does. Number three, familiarity. Familiarity. I'm going to go back to this 
Mark 6, 51 and 52. They were completely astounded because they had not understood about the loaves. Like they were still like, for lack of a better term, they were still chewing on that one. Instead, their hearts were hardened. They were, they were upset enough about the loaves that it took Jesus walking on water to restore the fear of the Lord to their life. I'm, I'm going to say it to this side of the room. They were so upset about the fish and the loaves that it took Jesus walking on water to restore the fear of the Lord to their lives. What's it going to take for you and me? I asked a friend of mine who had uh, actually gone to, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I keep using the terminology Asbury. Um, on February 8th, an, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit happened at Asbury College over in Kentucky. And it was, it was incredible because it wasn't a light show. There wasn't a fog machine. There wasn't a celebrity preacher or like a, you know, a celebrity, you know, worship leader. It was a bunch of college students that just wanted to experience the love of God in Christ. And so they began worshiping and they just didn't stop. It was a continuous worship and prayer, uh, outpouring that lasted for like 10 days consecutive worship and prayer god showed up in a powerful powerful way and i had a friend of mine that went down and i said I said david was it was it legitimate like was it the, the real thing and he said he said yeah it was an absolute move of god he said but here's the thing and i need you to hear this church i need you to hear this he said but you've been in 30 or 40 services like that and I said, what do you mean? He said, you got to understand, these guys, like, they're not Pentecostals. They're not, like, going after the presence of God in their church services almost ever. He's like, this is all very new for them because it's the first time they've done it. You remember? The disciples have become so accustomed to Jesus being Jesus that there were moments they were willing to harden their hearts about something that should have caused them to fall down and worship. What would you do if you saw Jesus feed 5,000 people? I would hope that my response would be like, oh my gosh, dude, I know how many loaves there were. Like, listen guys, th so this last Saturday, I, I, I cooked up some brisket for our, our, our men's breakfast. And you would be amazed at how much meat 70 or 80 dudes can pack away. I literally, I, I, I smoked up about 26 or 27 pounds of brisket. And like when I got home and my wife was like, where's the brisket? I was like, they ate it all. <laughs> what I'm saying is, do you, you understand how much it would take to feed 5,000 people? The most that I have ever cooked anything for is about 300 people. It took me days and days of preparation. I had to get like six different Traegers. Like I had, to, I had to do all this stuff and Jesus did it like that. And it wasn't 300, it was 5,000. But because of their familiarity with Jesus, they took that miracle, not just for granted, but they took it completely the wrong way. They were like, geez, stepping on my testimony time. 
out there feeding 5,000 people. Jesus, <laughs> that guy. We do this a lot of times in church. I don't feel like worshiping today because we've forgotten that the presence of God is the presence of God. Not the presence of your good buddy, not your wife. Man, do you remember the first time? Do you remember when you watched your wife walk down the aisle? Where'd that go? Sorry, I'm kind of like transitioning into something else, but where'd that go? Familiarity is where it went. You have become so familiar with the most important person in your life that you actually take them for granted on a fairly regular basis. But man, we do this with God all the time. All the time. Do you understand what a privilege it is to be chosen of the Lord? Do you understand? I shouldn't be chosen, but I was. I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Neither you. That's the point. Our familiarity with the presence of God has robbed us and robbed him of the awe that is due his name. Because we know that we get Jesus. And because we get Jesus, we get used to Jesus. But can I encourage you to rend your heart this morning? Tear it open again. And remind yourself how blessed you are that you are the called and chosen people of God. How blessed and highly favored that you are. That lowly as you are and lowly as I am, he chose you from the foundations of the world to receive an inheritance and become adopted into his family. How privileged and how blessed we are should inform how we treat the presence of God. It should inform how we treat the movement of God. Isaiah, when he saw the Lord, wasn't like, well, I worshiped in the car on the way up the hill. No, when, when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, he fell on his face and he said, woe is me for I'm undone because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amidst the people of unclean lips. I shouldn't be here. And neither should we. We shouldn't be here. But by God's grace, we are. By his grace, we've been chosen. By his grace, we've been brought in and not shut out. By his blood, we've been covered. We've been forgiven. Can I tell you the truth? Being in the presence of God is our normal, but we should never treat it as normal. Miracles might be our normal, but we should never treat it as normal. Prophecy might be our normal, but we should never treat it as normal. Encounters are our normal, but we should never be treated as normal. Forgiveness is our normal, but should never be treated as normal. Grace and peace and joy are our normal, but they should never be treated as normal. Because what you view as normal, you will often mistreat. What you view as normal, I need you to hear this. What you view as normal, you will often mistreat. Man, growing up, <laughs> grow, 
growing up, we mistreated butter knives. Okay, butter knives were used for everything. My mom taught me this trick about how to open a pickle jar where you take a butter knife and, and you turn it around so that like the fat end is like, and you just hit the top of it a couple of times to break the seal if you're having a hard time opening the pickle jar. I have butter knives in my home that are like bent sideways from all the various ways that I have mistreated and abused the butter knife. But then there are the fancy butter knives, the ones that are made of silver that I don't use to pry open stuff. I don't use it in common ways. I only get them out at special times and I only present them to special people. Can I put it, put it to you this way? Sometimes we treat our relationship with God as just like the fix-all for everything in our, you know, in our body, in our life. When the reality is, is it's so precious to know that as broken and flawed and messed up as you and I are, He still said, here, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to go with you. Moses, this is where I'm wrapping up here. Even after God said, in Exodus, like it's 28 or, or 29. After the people of Israel have, you know, created the golden calf, you know, Moses comes down the mountain, smashes the, you know, Ten Commandments. Stuff goes bad. It gets bad, okay? But Moses, when he's talking to God afterwards, he says, God tells him, I'm going to send an angel with you because if I go with you, I'm going to destroy you. Like, there's no other way around it. Like, I will destroy you if I go with you. Listen to me. Understand this. Moses so valued the presence of God being part of the experience that he said, I would rather that you went with us and destroyed us than that you sent an angel in your place. Because how will the nations know that we are special if you are not with us? If you don't go, I'm not going. I will die on this mountain before I leave you. And there are times I come to church and I'm like, I don't know if I want to worship today. What you view as normal, you will often mistreat. I'm just going to read you this last scripture and then we're just going to worship this morning. This is John 20, verse 30 and 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Man, friend, can I tell you the truth? God's not trying to impress you. He's trying to save you. God's not trying to impress you. He's trying to give you freedom. These signs are given to you so that you would believe not just so that you'd be happy, not just so that you would be, you know, whole and fulfilled, not so that you would just be healed, but so that you would believe in Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the Messiah, and that by believing, you would have a new life in Him. Can I ask you a question? Do you know Jesus today? Do you know Jesus? Maybe I'll ask you another question. When was the last time 
that you were in awe of the Lord? When was the last time that you gave him the awe that is due his name? Can we stand up on our feet this morning? I'm going to leave you with that. Because this morning as we enter into worship, I want, to be, I want you to be reminded of how good he is. But not just how good he is. How powerful he is. How mighty he is. I want you to be, I want you to understand. I want you to understand that he's not just your Jesus. He's King Jesus. He's not just our friend or our brother. He is our God and King. And I want to be reminded this morning that when we engage with the presence of God, we're not just engaging with the warm gooseies that the Holy Spirit tends to give people. We're engaging with the one that designed us. We are friends with the one who built and created everything and designed everything and spoke everything into existence. And the Bible says that it's still, everything is sustained by the word of his power. The fact that you woke up this morning is because God decided that you should. And so I wanna worship from that place. I wanna worship from the place that says, I don't wanna take any moment that I have with Jesus for granted. I don't want to take any second that I can give him in praise as though it's not precious to me. I don't want to take one moment that I spend in his presence and think to myself, boy, I really need this. Yeah, you do need it, but that's not the point of worship. Worship is not necessarily so that you and I feel better about ourselves. Worship is what we owe God for who God is. And so when we worship, the beauty of it is, is we are ministering to the Spirit of God, but God always ministers to us. That's the beauty of worship. I do need to worship. I do need Him to fill me again. I do need Him to come in and, and fix things in my life and realign my thoughts. But this morning, I just want to, can we do something all over this room? Can we lift our hands to the Lord? Jesus, we declare your goodness in this place. Jesus, we declare your glory in this house. God, we thank you for everything that you've done. God, you're so good to us. You're so much better to us than we deserve. God, we thank you today. We thank you today for your faithfulness. We thank you today for your holiness. We thank you today that you're the same God today that you were then. God, I thank you that you're still in the business, that you're still in the business of miracles, you're still in the business of wonders, you're still in the business of signs, and what we just declare this morning, 